2: The show and podcast informs, educates, and illuminates the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte.
1: For our guest today, please welcome Doug Abbey, lecturer in finance at Stanford University, where he works with GSB students to evaluate career opportunities in real estate and to expose them to research and education opportunities. In the field. Doug is also chairman of Swift Real Estate Partners, a San Francisco based company focused on value added office properties on the West Coast. Doug previously co founded two investment management organizations AMB Property Corporation, merged with Prologis NYSE, now the largest global industrial REIT, or EREIT, and IHP Capital Partners, a provider of equity. To the single family home building industry. For more information, feel free to visit gsb.stanford.edu and look for Douglas Abbey. Again, gsb.stanford.edu. Hello, Doug. We're honored and excited to have you on the Modern Architect Show today. Good morning, Tom. Doug, can you share with us, as we talked about before our show, some of you know, your early inspirations into doing what it is that you're doing and the, uh, the positive impact that, uh, that you're having, if you had uh, liberty to share with us?
3: Well, I think I'm a, an example of an unplanned career in real estate design, architecture, and building. I was an English major in college. And I had no interest in business or making money. I'm, You might say I'm a child of the 60s when our job was to go out and change the world. And, um, and we weren't interested in making money. And nobody in my college class went off to do anything involved with making money. And so I taught school for several years in the Bronx and in New Zealand. And um, lo and behold, I figured at some point I wasn't going to be a 50-year-old third-grade math teacher. I wanted to do something else. But I didn't know what that would be. And a friend of mine said, are you interested in real estate consulting? And I said, no, <laughs> but I needed a job. This was during a lousy recession. I needed a job, and I showed up and worked in real estate consulting, where we were would advise corporations, landowners, investors on what to do with their real estate assets. And sort of like if you know that commercial where Mikey and his brothers are sitting there and they give him some life cereal and yes. they say, well, let's see what, what Mikey thinks. And I tried real estate and having no interest in it whatsoever, and I found that I actually liked it, and and that started a career that began in 1974 and I'm coming on up, uh, closing, closing into 50 years of being involved in the real estate world.
1: Excellent. Doug, where did your interest in land use come from?
3: Well, it's interesting. In my senior year in college, I took uh, a history of art course. I had no interest in art. I didn't know. But everyone said it was a great course, and I took this wonderful survey of history of art, starting with the caveman at Lascaux, going all the way running out of gas as we entered into the 19th century. But I was fascinated by architecture and how the built environment related to society and over many millennia and starting with the monumental egyptian architecture moving into the greeks and then into the romanesque period and the gothic period all the way to neozandero uh, today and after college a couple of years after working i did go to europe and travel around and and, and having that background in the Janssen and Janssen History of art book that describes architecture as one of the elements of history of art, I was fascinated everywhere I went in Europe there was just I couldn't walk I couldn't I walked into every cathedral my kids tell me I never met a cathedral that I didn't want to go into and uh, and just, but just walking around Europe I just thought was fascinating so I think that caught my eye and then when I Broke into the real estate business. I really had some appreciation for land use and land use patterns, and how they evolve.
1: How much? Well, obviously, we're in different times now. But how much? I'm not sure how to put this. But how much is maybe similar to what was done, you know, maybe a thousand years ago, even today, or even is relevant.
3: Well, if you go back to the first shopping center, was the Greek agora. It was uh, the agora was a marketplace for goods and ideas, and that's where Plato and Aristotle and people thought big thoughts. But also, when you look at the history of cities, Greece was the first city that was empire that was built around an island nation, and it was because the Greeks were constantly trading, and it was the mixing of cultures that led to the explosion of the Greek explosion of, in history and architecture and, and drama and uh, literature and painting and sculpture. All of this came out of the fact that Greece was a trading nation, and you compare Greece to Egypt. Egypt, at the same time, for 3,000 years, the culture didn't change. It was monumental architecture, and there was I a mean, coming. If you look at the map, if you look at an aerial, you'll see that Luxor... Is a thousand miles down the Nile, sitting there in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. So the Egyptians, even though it was a great civilization, did not innovate. Whereas the Greeks were traders, and uh, that led to massive innovation in in Greece.
1: What's your thoughts on that sort of mindset? Is that always conducive towards a a growth-oriented society, or or? or Community when when there is so if, always a constant trading.
3: If you look if you look at the history of in, where innovation and entrepreneurship occurs, it occurs where cultures intersect, where there is a diverse body, where there are people with different languages, and it, it actually started the cities. The first cities were in Ur in 3000 BC, and what happened was that the in, along the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers there was surplus, and the um, The the local people recognized that they could have two, and if not three, crops per year. So that led to the idea of storage. And once you began to store goods, then you created, you begin to create a a city in an urban environment. So there were 20 cities with more than 20,000 people in in that part of the world in the Fertile Crescent. And so cities basically came from the idea of trading, where you have one, where society A is very good at making one thing and society B is making, very good at making something else. And when they trade, you have something called Pareto optimality, which is that the whole system gets better off by exchanging, by people specializing in one good and exporting it to another. And so if you look throughout history, the great civilizations, the great empires, have all been centered around places where there is trade, where there's different ideas, diverse ideas coming in, and whether it's Venice or whether it's the Dutch Empire or London or even the United States, having a diverse society that's open to outsiders and to innovate has led to innovation and entrepreneurship, and then and that's still true today. <sighs>
1: Fascinating. Something else I'll throw in there that you may you may or may not find relevant is a water. How about the w- water in and around a community or a geography, and how important and if it's important in your uh...
3: well? If you look at the the ports, these all of the great cities. If you really think back over time, whether the cities I mentioned—Venice and Amsterdam and London and uh, in ancient Athens all ports and so water is, is the easiest way to trade and the cost of moving goods over water is a small fraction of the cost of moving goods over land. So if you really look at where cities started, they all they tend to be located right on water, on rivers, near ports, near near ports of entry.
1: And with that country that I've been curious about Recently, is uh, Portugal because I believe I believe Portugal was at one of the first European nation uh, countries that went outside of Europe and along uh, to the Americas and and downwards, and and how vital trade was to them. Can you share your experience? You know why you know certain countries, places become more. Well-known, or I guess, for lack of a better word, powerful in their time, and then how, how it sort of fades away, and what usually, if there's a common thread as to why that there's sort of um, that hierarchy goes away or changes. Well, or you
3: remember, you remember that Portugal and Spain basically, the Pope permitted Portugal and Spain to divide the world in half, and because they were ceasefire nations and they were in cahoots with the Popes. And, but Portugal is a teeny little country. But because it's such a small country with all of that coastline, they developed incredible sailing fleets and they dis- discovered they went all the way down the coast of Africa and then they went around and they discovered India. And the Spanish had the other half of the world and they discovered the New World. So, but then what happens over time is that cities, the cities live and die just like businesses do. Mm-hmm. And they get eclipsed as transportation changes. And so, you know, if you look in the United States, you had what was originally the ports, the all of the economic activity in the United States was within 20 miles in the, in the colonial era, uh, within 20 miles of the Atlantic Ocean. And then they suddenly discovered canals, and by open, by, by canals they opened up the entire, basically, the Midwest and the Great Lakes through water again, but the change in transportation infrastructure led to opening up whole new cities. And then the railroad came along, and so Chicago became mm-hmm. the center of the world. And if you go to Atlanta, Atlanta, it was a nothing, little peanut town. It was at the terminus of the railroad. And now it, and then after, the highway, and interstate highways opened up cities that never existed before, like Indianapolis and so forth, and then you get to air conditioning. Without air conditioning, do you think people could live in Phoenix and then Dallas and in Houston? And then finally, you have the jet. So today, you know, transportation has now made places that have access to great airports are now leading places in the world: Shanghai and Tokyo and um, London and Miami and Los Angeles, San Francisco. Are places with world-class airports that, um, because so much today of the goods that are traveling around the world, are high value and they're coming in in the belly of passenger planes. So, if you are at a place that has a great international airport, that will also lead to a more diverse population, which leads to, in turn, to innovation and entrepreneurship.
1: Yeah, Doug, how do you how do you define good land use in your own words?
3: Well, land use matters. There's a we know about Black Lives Matters, and I would say differently that land use matters. And get on a, a drone now, and let's go to Europe. And if you go to Europe, you look down on the drone, and you're going to find a little village and you're going or a little town. Yeah. Pound, go look up Poundsbury by uh, which was a, a favorite town of uh, Prince Charles. And you go on that drone, and there's a lovely little village. And then you go to the edge of the village, and you'll find that the street stops, and there's an abrupt transition between the town and the countryside. And in the United States, if you were to go to Los Angeles and go in downtown Los Angeles, and you take that same drone, and you would go 40 or 50 miles until eventually your land uses would peter out in this massive sprawl that goes on and on forever. You go back to Europe and you'll find where are the best schools? Where do the rich people live in Paris? They live in the 16th arrondissement. They live in the Central City. Where do the poor people live in Europe? They live in the suburbs. Now, let's go on our drone, let's come back to Cleveland. In Cleveland, we would find that the poor people, where do the poor people live? They live in the central city. And where do the rich people live? They live in the suburbs. So actually I find this quite confusing. How do land use patterns get developed? What what leads the land use? How do land use decisions get made? And it, the Winston Churchill said, we shape our cities and our cities shape, shape us. us. Yes. And so land use decisions and how they are made has a big impact on impact on how society is organized and where there are opportunities for people to advance and where you can build great communities and either it's very very good or it doesn't work so i think it's a fascinating topic to discuss
1: excellent this is the modern architect on kzsu stanford
2: 90.1 fm we want to tell you about kid mob which is a nonprofit mobile kid integrated design firm guided by a diverse and talented team of designers, architects, contractors, and engineers. KidMob works for the young people using project-based learning to address school and community needs. This is done through a variety of workshops, consulting, co-creation of curriculum, and much more. For additional information or to donate, visit kidmob.org. That's k-i-d-m-o-b.org. We're talking
1: today with Doug Abbey, Lecturer in Finance at Stanford University and Chairman of Swift Real Estate Partners, a San Francisco-based company. For more information, feel free to visit gsb.stanford.edu, Douglas Abbey. Again, gsb.stanford.edu, Douglas Abbey. Doug, can you share with us a bit about the prologists here at liberty and you know how that evolved or how, how that?
3: Uh... Prologis is the largest owner of warehouses in the world. It was a company started by me and another Stanford MBA student by the name of Hamid uh, Mogadam, and a third partner, Bob Burke. We started this company in 1983. and um, We grew to become a specialized investor in warehouses. and. Uh, and here it is. Now we are the largest warehouse, Prologis is the largest warehouse company in the world.
1: Excellent. Doug, was that kind of something you set out to do or no, you just felt like, you, you know, you, you had the uh, capability and you knew you could make a positive impact in doing so?
3: Well, again, you know, the notion that when I was teaching elementary school in the Bronx and uh, would have a career in real estate, was so far beyond anything that I could have imagined. So uh, I never really, I I, I didn't grow up thinking that I wanted to be uh, in in business or making money. And lo and behold, sometimes it's these random events in a career that can lead you in a direction that you never even contemplated. And so lo and behold, that's where we find ourselves today.
1: Yeah. How do, uh, how does U.S. land use patterns kind of in your words here you have stack up today how how does it stack up
3: today well i think let's first of all there's a famous supreme court justice named potter stewart and he was asked about how you define pornography and he said well i don't know but i know it when i see it <laughs> and when we look at land use patterns and we look at cities we want to know what makes them walkable if you look at any city in europe and you see it filled with people and there's a a corner and, and everybody's on the street, it's just so exciting, and you think, isn't that wonderful, and how did that happen? And then you can go to places in U.S. cities, and they're completely dead, and nobody is on the street, and you don't feel safe. So how did that happen? How does that happen? And what would we define as good land use? And so I'm um, now, now, to be a little cynical, you could today, with particularly with young people, where do they want to live? They want to live where they can walk for good coffee. <laughs> yeah. And if if you think about yeah, the suburbs, you have to get in the car to go get your coffee. But how, where do young people today want to live? They want to live in walkable neighborhoods mm-hmm. that that rank high on walkability. They want to be able to walk two blocks and get their coffee. So coffee drives land use. Who? Uh, there's an idea oh, for you. But okay. <laughs> stepping back, let's we learn we learn from. You know, from reading. And the great, the, the great book on land use was written in 1967 by Jane Jacobs. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. Anybody who's interested in architecture, it's a must read, even though it's 50 years old. It's called The Death and Life of American Cities. And I read it when I was in graduate school at Berkeley in city planning. And I, I thought this opened my eyes. So let's unpack what is it that makes a city great? And she argues that there are four things, and I'll list them here, and then we'll take them. They are density, mixed-use, mixed-age, and active streets. So we'll start with density. If you believe and you like that vision of a city that's filled with people and shops and people walking and lovers holding hands and <laughs> people arguing and all this. Th- you can go to any place <laughs> in Europe and you just, you can see, you can p- picture a walkable city. And the first ingredient that you need to have is people. So it's people on the street that activate it, that support retail uses that attract people to come and that make people feel safe how many times have you been walking and particularly for women walking down the street and there's nobody on the street Mm. and you turn around and you suddenly you don't see anybody and you feel very very uncomfortable if you take that same street and you fill it up with people people would feel very you would feel very comfortable walking down the street Mm. so the first ingredient is density the second ingredient that Jane Jacobs talks about is mixed use, and this is very important because what mixed use is is that we take an office building or and then we put it next to a warehouse, and then we have some shopping, and then we have apartment buildings, and then maybe we have some civic uses, and if we so commingle those and we put them next together, we find that the patterns of usage of the street vary depending upon Use On the weekends, the street is activated by people that are living in apartment buildings, and then in the office buildings, it's during the day, and then in the retail, it could be, and the food uses, it could be at night. So a mixed-use environment activates the street at different times of the day. And you know that many US cities are quite are viewed a downtown is viewed as being sterile because they just have one use, which is office uses, and nobody really wants to be downtown after five o'clock at night. The third ingredient is mixed age. Now this one isn't intuitive, but I think it's fascinating. What Jane argues and she uses as an example, Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. Hmm. If you've been to Rittenhouse Square, you'll see that there are brand new apartment buildings and luxury condos but then there are old buildings and so what she says is that it's sort of like some people can afford a mercedes and some people want to be in a chevrolet and some people want to be in a fiat and so just like uh, when you have in close proximity uses that are have buildings that are a different age they attract different profiles of of residents and so the luxury condominium would have, uh, you know, the executive and, and so forth. And, and next door and at Rittenhouse Square might be a much lower, older building with lower rents. And that could be the violinist who's coming in different hours to, who plays for this Philadelphia orchestra. And so um, having people next to each other who are different, who have different income profiles leads to a more dynamic, interesting street than if everybody looks the same. Then the last one, if you, ever, if you know where Jane Jacobs lived, she lived in Greenwich Village. And it's a quite an interesting story of how she came to become an expert on land use and U.S. cities. Because she was basically, she grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and became an editor and got interested in land use and began to write this book. Now, that was the time when Robert Moses was tearing down half of New York and building freeways and parks and tearing down slums. And uh, they were going to, Robert Moses was going to build a freeway through what now is our beloved Greenwich Village where she lived on Hudson Street. And she was a uh, veritable little old lady in tennis shoes. And she stopped the freeway from being built. And then she wrote this wonderful book. Which today, even today, inspires people. And the last, so the last ingredient is what she called, what we would call, active streets. And her, her view of New York was criticized by some, saying it was sort of old, really ro- a romantic vision of sitting on your stoops and knowing who belonged on your street and who didn't. Mm-hmm. But she called it eyes on the street, and she called it the sidewalk ballet. But she believed that an active street led to safety and att- attracted people and again if you go to los angeles you will see that the streets it takes about uh, 60 seconds to walk the streets are so wide it takes the full 60 seconds on that clock to walk across those six lanes and you go to utah and the streets are built that are wide enough so that they were uh, that an ox with eight and ox, could do a U-turn. So wide streets are really not very hospitable. When you go to Europe, isn't that little street that curves? Mm-hmm. When a street curves, what do you want to do, Tom? You want to go around the corner. Absolutely. You want to see what's around the corner. When you go to Los Angeles and you go to... So you actually, even if you look at the size of blocks in Portland, the blocks are 200 by 200. And then in, in Los Angeles, they could be four or 500 feet by four or 500 feet. So the size of the block and the, the width of the street matters. And, and it even it, uh, there's a very interesting new urban idea, which is how to make streets more walkable. And when you close a lane of traffic, and make it available for bikes, people slow down, and when the, the drivers slow down, and when they slow down, people feel more safe, they feel more able to cross the street. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but if you go on Broadway in New York City or you go to cities where they've built bike lanes, it does slow traffic down, and it makes people feel safer, and the street becomes activated. So those are the four ingredients, and you have, when you combine them all, you come to see something that can be very, very exciting. But we have what, but that's not the case in the United States, and which I could describe in further detail.
1: Please do. Oh, yeah, before we we do that, Doug, our audio engineer Ben had an interesting question for yes. you. Yes, uh, how, how are you doing, Doug?
3: Doing great, Ben.
1: So I had a quick question for you. How do these ingredients affect the individual economies?
3: Well, if a city is active and it attracts young people then it will create, bring talent, and it'll bring diversity. And, you know, it, it, a city that's homogeneous, that everybody looks the same as dull, people don't want to go there. They want to go to a place where people are different, where they can learn from different cultures and where they can interact with different people. They find that exciting. And so I think it's true that the cities that are really quite dynamic now are also quite diverse.
1: Oh, okay. Thank you very much.
3: Yeah, Doug, uh, again,
1: as you, you were sharing with the, uh, the cities in the United States and how the, the four ingredients and what are the challenges to actually be overcome, you know, please share.
3: Well, we need to go back in history to the beginning of the 1900s, and um, there were great architects. You know, the Flatiron Building in New York. Was designed by. I you'll help to me, know. Tom.
1: I know. I. I, yes. I, I was looking Every, at them like The three readers, weeks will, ago. of
3: course. Yeah. The readers, of course, will know. But the Flatiron Building is an example of what of wonderful buildings that were built um, in uh, w- with great uh, windows and fenestration and uh, wonderful design features. And then um, a massive. The building was built on Broadway. There was like a refrigerator, and it was so big that it blocked access to light and air. And so in the early 1900s, the city of New York developed a zoning ordinance. And it was the first zoning ordinance in the United States, and the idea was to provide access to light and air for residents. Now, the legality of zoning was surely to be tested because it was infringing upon property rights. And you could say that in America, everybody has a right to carry a gun and do whatever they want with their property. And the idea of zoning is that it would you limit what you could do on your property. So anyway, zoning was, it was enacted. And then we're going back to Cleveland. We find that there was a famous Supreme Court case in 1926 that anybody who studies architecture or land use or real estate needs to understand, which is Euclid the Ambler, and in Euclid B. Ambul- a a zoning ordinance in the suburb of Cleveland well, was promulgated by the municipality. And and the idea, frankly, was made, made some sense because they said, we have these industrial areas and we don't want people living next to an industrial area because they would be sick and it wouldn't be good for their health. So the idea was to take in an industrial zone and create an industrial zone and keep people from living in it. That made some sense. But... It got all the way up to the Supreme Court, and even a lower, but a lower court ruled, ruled in a, in a dissenting opinion, said that the purpose of zoning would be to segregate people by income and their station and life. So be careful what you're doing here. Anyway, the Supreme Court in 1926 invalidated zoning. So Herbert Hoover at the time was the Secretary of Commerce, and he and other people went around, and they took the state. They went to the states, and they created enabling legislation for the states to create general plans and, and zoning districts. And the zoning districts were what we would call Euclidean zoning. They were single-purpose. You would have a residential here. You'd have low-density uh, residential, high-density, higher-density residential. You'd have office zone. You'd have a retail zone. And so you segregated land uses in single-purpose Euclidean zones that was and the idea was that the state is has what's called the police power the police power is the right to control the health and safety of the uh, residents and so when uh, the, the supreme court ruled in favor of zoning they were basically saying it was a legitimate use of, of the police power to control land use decision and to have it, it, it was to, for the government to control land use decisions. So the state is the state has the power to, to regulate land, or to exercise the police power. And what the enabling legislation did was that it delegated from the states the power to regulate land use to local municipalities. So that began what, or that Supreme Court case led to what, to the land use patterns that we have today in America. And so let me describe them. First of all, you will see that quite often we have single-use districts. We also have what you would describe as sprawl that goes on forever, which is you could argue is not an efficient use of land or good for the environment. Sure. Um, you also had segregation of people trapped into poverty, into areas where horrible places to live, where there's... Uh, where there's trauma. And and the trauma that people suffer in bad neighborhoods is something that's very, very difficult to overcome. Anybody who can come out of a, a central city where people are shooting guns, if you're a small child growing up there, you're traumatized. And that affects your ability to learn and be successful. So the land use patterns that came out of what I would call the Euclidean approach to zoning have led to things that when you say, when Winston Churchill says we shape our cities and our cities shape us, maybe we don't, if we were to really think about it, maybe we're not following the American ideal of giving people an opportunity to advance themselves, to get a good education and to improve their station in life.
1: Excellent. Well stated. This is the modern architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM.
2: Since 1985, Project Open Hand has provided home-delivered meals, groceries, and nutritional counseling to critically ill neighbors and seniors in San Francisco and Alameda counties. Their slogan is Meals with Love, and they invite you to become a member of the Project Open Hand family by volunteering or supporting their efforts to deliver 2,500 meals and 200 bags of groceries per day. To find out more, visit openhand.org. That's O-P-E-N-H-A-N-D, all one word, .org.
1: We're talking today with Doug Abbey, Lecturer in Finance at Stanford University and Chairman of Swift Real Estate Partners, a San Francisco-based company. For more information, feel free to visit gsb.stanford.edu and put Douglas Abbey. Again, gsb.stanford.edu, Douglas Abby, Doug, I want to step back into something you just said. That was, um, it's interesting, but it's also sad.
3: But I think oh, by you're... the way, I have to stop. Daniel Burnham, of course. No, make no plan, no small plans. They have no ability to inspire. So, of course, Daniel Burnham was the designer of the Flatiron Building. Yes, but go ahead, Tom.
1: Thank you, Doug. Yes, thank you for for, uh, for telling us that. Trapped in trauma. That's sad, but I know a lot of your work is to help. People no longer be trapped in trauma. Can you share with us, you know, what that means to you?
3: Well, before we get to trauma, let's talk. Let's come back to trauma in a minute. But I do want to talk about sprawl because sprawl is basically what led to the um, concentration of poverty in urban areas. But Excellent. Please there's, do. There's what I would call the sprawl coalition, and this may seem counterintuitive, but there are three members of the sprawl coalition one is the federal government the second is homeowners and the third is environmentalists so let's take them one at a time the federal government for for basically 70 years has had a housing policy that has has led to sprawl for example we built the interstate highways that permitted us to empty out the central cities where 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 people that had means could move to the suburbs and they could buy a nice quarter acre house on a lot And they could leave the poor people behind in the city. So the interstate highway system contributed to that. The deductibility of mortgage interest forever until the most recent uh, tax law was one where it was basically a wealth transfer from poor people and middle income people to homeowners. Because if you deducted your interest, if you deducted an interest and in property taxes, it lowered the cost of being a homeowner, and actually encouraged people to have bigger houses and bigger lots that are further and further from the city. So, of course, I don't even have time. We don't even have time to get into redlining and the disadvantages that people in poor neighborhoods had to try to get a mortgage. So the federal government certainly was instrumental. The next thing is the homeowner. So this comes back to Euclid the Amber, but let's say that you lived in a nice suburban jurisdiction like Atherton or Palo Alto. And let's say that there was an election and somebody and, and a candidate said, I want to make sure that we have large lot zoning, single family lot zoning, and that we don't let anybody else come in. And What would happen to the value of your house if people want to live in Atherton or Woodside or Palo Alto, and you made it very difficult for people to build and add new supply? The value of your house would go up. So if people are going to vote in their economic interest, they would vote for people who would restrict supply and make their home more valuable. Now, that might be good for the people in Atherton. But what about the people that work in the schools or the janitor or the policeman that would like to live in that same community? They've been priced out. So in Euclid the Ambler, we basically took the power to regulate land use and we moved it to the local jurisdiction. But the local jurisdiction's boundaries are the people that live in it, and they don't take into account the views and the needs of people that live outside the jurisdiction. So the homeowners are certainly somebody that are in favor of sprawl and makes their houses more valuable. And they're environmentalists, and again, this may seem a little counterintuitive because as we think of the, environmental as being the environmentalists as being these wonderful green people. But as a practical matter, if you limit supply, if you see uh, you make it hard to build, which uh, much the CEQA, the Environmental Quality Act, and actions of environmentalists where they oppose development and the building of houses and apartments and make it very, very difficult to build has had the impact of increasing, of decreasing supply, making it more costly to build and more expensive, which really means that you have places like San Francisco that ultimately will be a place for the very rich people because they're the only ones that can afford. So the combination of these three have led to sprawl. And they've also led to concentration of poverty, uh, which is where we started in terms of being of uh, seeing young people, children trapped in trauma.
1: Yes, the solutions that you're working on, you know, you share with us, Doug. You know what you, what you've experienced, what you've seen, and the uh, the positive impact of it.
3: Well, there are people who recognize that it's the the, the people that should be making land use decisions or it should be there should be a state the state has a legitimate interest in providing opportunity for people for providing adequate supply so that people can afford to live in a house And if you let all the jurisdictions make those decisions, the local jurisdictions, then you end up into problems. So let's take California. Over the last 10 years, we've built about half of – there's something called the RENA, which is your regional housing needs assessment. And every jurisdiction is required to meet state law to define what their fair share is of uh, the projected household growth. In the metropolitan area, and they're supposed to define their fair share of it. But this is just—it's analysis, it's not action. Because what's happening is that we're building about half of the of the housing units that that the RENA analysis suggests that you're supposed to. So a, a community could say, well, we need a thousand units, but they only build 500 and there's no consequence. So as a result, in California, we're building far less housing than is necessary to keep up with demand. And as a consequence, housing becomes more expensive. The rents, and everybody who your listeners are who are thinking about getting an apartment or buying their first house, know how expensive it is. And it's because the decisions for land use are made, and this goes back to Euclid the Ambler, are made by the local jurisdictions that don't have to take into account the broader public sector. So well, is this an easy problem to solve? No, because everybody likes the idea of democracy and people living in communities where they, know, where, where they can have people like them, just like them, living in the community. That, uh, that uh, has some appeal but it's not fair. It's not right. So I'm going to give you an example. In Massachusetts, there's a law called 40B. And what 40B says is that if a jurisdiction doesn't have 10% of the housing available to people making, uh, to lower and moderate income people, then the developer can bypass basically the local zoning ordinance and zoning apparatus and build as a matter of right. And this is really a good public policy because what it does is it says that communities do have some obligation to provide housing and to provide opportunities for lower-income people. And what, what is, going back to this issue of being trapped, what has been demonstrated is that if you take a family, of low, a low-income family, and you move them out of a central city and you move them, into a jurisdiction with good schools that their uh, opportunity uh, for advancement and for getting a good education and for getting a good job is substantially better and it's not surprising when they're in a neighborhood of where there are good schools so Clearly, this is a tough decision, and it's in, in the locale. The, the local politicians uh, are, are against this, but it's a, it's a very effective way of trying to create more opportunity and to for, to build, build communities that aren't just um, people that look like themselves and that vote for the same candidates and go to the same churches, but to bring in people that are different. I think that's enriching.
1: Yeah. Now, Doug, what's the likelihood? Have you ever? found a study or did your own study or, uh, are aware of any study that even, a, a child born in, in a trauma area becomes, you know, quite, uh, well-known, recognized, successful, whatever you want to call it to where they completely transcend their environment and actually, you know, start an entirely new, uh, life. even, even, regardless of ex- experiencing that trauma I don't know if there are any
3: studies. Oh, well, well I think that the clearly, clearly people that you know live in disadvantage I and mean, they're all of people that are able to overcome hardship and but it's really not it's they, they just have a handicap it's tough but I think they're and I think Chetty who's now at Stanford was at Harvard has done there's very good work that demonstrates uh, and and that the, once you move people into better neighborhoods and better schools, they do better. It's not surprising. It's completely intuitive. And I think it's been demonstrated by research. Very, very well done research.
1: Again, you you had on, uh, you know, how do the the patterns, you shared with us some of but can you kind of go in again to the, how do the U.S. land use patterns develop?
3: Well, you know, let's, here's another example, which is if you look today at There there was an article in the New York Times in the last week that looked at single-family zoning, and it's amazing when cities like Minneapolis and Los Angeles and other cities have single-family zoning for 80 to 90 percent of the the surface area of their cities, which seems really kind of odd, isn't it? Cities are supposed to be areas where there's density, where there's you know where there are apartment buildings, where there's so. We're now starting to see in Minneapolis and in Portland, Oregon, and other places, a move to eliminate, entirely eliminate single-family zoning, which would permit people to take vacant lots and to build two, three, four plexes that you know would provide you know more affordable rents. So I think there's another an example of ways that you can try to build communities that are more diverse and that there's more opportunity for housing and then the simplest way to add supply and then housing is something called adus accessory dwelling units so it's really that um the backyard little little house or it's the uh, the garage unit garage that's been converted into a studio or in an attic apartment in single-family neighborhoods They're, they're, particularly with the baby boomers getting older and living in big houses where they're rattling around, where two people are rattling around a five bedroom house. The smartest way to introduce new supply without any public subsidy, without any investment, is to make it easier for people to have what are called mother in law or accessory dwelling units. Mm. But, again going back to regulations you know cities many cities have laws that make it difficult for people to per- to convert but that space into a housing unit for example they would have requirements for parking and access and all sorts of other things but again we're starting to see states and even municipalities uh, but particularly at the state level trying to make it easier for people to convert and to create an accessory dwelling unit, and, and those units are quite often, particularly in cities, close to transit and they're close to job opportunities.
1: Yeah, can you share some examples, uh, not ADUs, accessory dwelling units, that have been successful in your experience or uh, your? Well,
3: experience? I think Santa Cruz um, was the one, was one of the first municipalities to go through and to create a to lower the hurdles, and I do believe that they've been very successful at creating more opportunities. And you think about Santa Cruz, which is a place where students need places to live. And and so it's a perfect way for somebody that owns a house to generate some income and for the student to have a, a reasonable place to live that's close to school. So I think, you know, it, it, it is probably the easiest way that we can get around you know, our housing shortage problem, because you can almost wave a wand and just say, come up, get a permit, and you can have an accessory dwelling unit uh, without a bunch of rigmarole.
1: Yeah. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford.
2: Doctors Without Borders delivers emergency medical aid worldwide to people affected by armed conflict, epidemics, natural and man-made disasters, or a shortage of healthcare care services. Since its founding in 1971, dedicated medical teams have treated over 100 million patients. Doctors Without Borders relies on private contributors to maintain its ability to operate independently and respond where needed at a moment's notice. To learn more, please visit Doctors Without Borders org
1: we're talking today with doug abbey lecturer in finance at stanford university and chairman of swift real estate partners a san francisco based company for more information feel free to visit gsb.stanford.edu douglas abbey again gsb.stanford.edu and punching uh douglas abbey doug if you uh maybe we're going a little outside of your uh Either your interest or, or experience, for sure, I'm sure you have. Is how about influencing legislation with uh, some of the land use patterns?
3: Well, I have to give a shout out to Scott Wiener, who is basically a state is, uh, is a senator from San, uh, San Francisco in in the California legislature, and he has been championing a number of laws that uh, would lead to more density around transit and making it easier for people to build and to get around some of the limitations. So there are definitely the solution to many of our land use problems and to our housing affordability problems really stems from people at the state level and people with some courage. And they have to buck up against powerful interests, including those people that represent local governments who you need to take their power away. But it's really a matter of balancing. We know that having local control is generally a good thing but there is also you have to balance the interest of the people who are in the residents of an individual jurisdiction with the broader population and where there's to to provide opportunity for people to have housing and to have jobs that are close to where their employment is instead of commuting 2 hours one way 4 hours a day to get to places for to work.
1: Yeah. What are other solutions that we may not have uh, talked about already? What what kind of ideas are you thinking that that uh, are unique and would really help solve some problems that really uh, people aren't uh, addressing?
3: Well, there certainly is an interest in, in architecture students, and the holy grail for many, many years has been modular housing, has been to create a more effective way of delivering and lower cost housing. Because every housing project today has to be designed by an architect and, uh, and it's each design is unique and it's built on site. It's very, very expensive. But if you could build a house an apartment, and apartments in a factory and get a crane and stack them up on a, a concrete foundation, um, there is the opportunity and the hope that through modular housing, we can deliver lower cost housing. So that's, I think, one of the most promising but it's it is as I say the Holy Grail and uh, it has not yet been demonstrated that it can be done effectively but there are a lot of people trying to crack that nut
1: yeah. what would you suggest for let's see uh, let's use our students a student who wants to become what you're doing in land use, real estate development? What would you suggest for them to do, or what? Uh, where could they go for resources to to find out if if it's something they uh, would like to make a career, a vocation, and, uh, and and a venture?
3: Well, there's an organization called the Urban Land Institute, which is. Uh been around for over 75 years. It's a non- global nonprofit and its mission is to create sustainable communities worldwide. And it's a, res- it's a tremendous resource for research and data on the built environment. And it also is a great way to network and meet people. To give you an example, the San Francisco District Council has 60 or 70 events a year and it's very inexpensive for a student to join. I think it's $100. So I advise all of my students who are interested in the built environment to join the Urban Land Institute and go and start to meet some people And learn some things. There are, of course, other very good information organizations like NAOP and, uh, but I I think, uh, there, when you're young, what you really need to do is, and you're trying to break into the business or to learn is to just go talk to people and you'll find when you call up people that, um, people in the real estate business tend to be pretty friendly. They will have a cup of coffee with you. They, we all remember what it was like being 25 and, and looking for a job and, and finding it frustrating and hard and not knowing what to do. And then somebody takes an interest in you and mentors you a little bit. And lo and behold, you know, you, your career takes shape. So I would encourage people to get out and get off the sofa, turn off the video <laughs> games, turn off Facebook, go meet some people.
2: Yeah. Charlotte, our engineer had a question for you, Doug. Oh, Hi, Doug. I'm your volunteer audio engineer from KCSU. I wanted to ask you, actually, I used to study out of Janssen & Janssen, but uh, inside the University of Texas, and I was there in 1974 to like 79 or so. Uh, That was before the height restrictions were, were lifted on behalf of the real estate developers. And so it was the only other city in the nation that had that that clear-cut distinct skyline where it had a tower, a university tower in the case of Austin and a Capitol building that actually is maybe a few feet taller than actually the one in D.C. Yes. So I want to ask you, like, just make a, a comparative analysis cause, because I think that it's Wiener that's the the author or, or behind AB50, which would be, you know, actually, you know, cutting to the chase. It seems like it would be lifting the height restrictions over time between – say, South San Francisco clear down to, uh, well, San Jose. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so for me, having lived in Austin before all of that growth happened, I mean, I, I don't even like to go there now, not because I, I really, I dislike the buildings or this thing, but the, but the traffic congestion was never accounted for. And to this day, I mean, I've, I've missed meetings going from the airport that was 12 minutes from my, my meeting in downtown Austin, because you just can't get there on, on I-35. And so, you know, there has to be, you know, when, when you go, well, you, you know, say stack and pack along the, along the railroads or however it is that you're going to start making higher density housing, et cetera, et cetera. How do we prevent, in one case, you could say, well, ruined a skyline that once was just pristine, uh, you know, almost like, um, well, you know, I think it was something to be preserved in my, in my own view and just the overcrowdedness of well, is, it, is it what we really want to do is just to open everything up to have no height restrictions all up and down the peninsula and the bay. Well, it's something is an aesthetic that, thing, you know?
3: Well, it depends. I mean, you could take Washington, D.C., where there's a height limit of 10 stories, and it's a pretty inefficient downtown because it just sprawls forever, and there's no architectural, nothing of architectural interest. But, you know, I, I do think that, den- I, I'm a believer that density is good. But you need investment in infrastructure, you need transit, you need express bus lanes, so you need to get people around. But in general, if you have the density, first of all, you want the density of a residential density to be near employment. So people can take what used to be a bike, or they could walk, and now you can get on a scooter. I mean, urban mobility is really changing. You can move around very quickly, so you want the density to be near employment, and the other thing that density does it activates the street so if you believe and if you like sort of the feeling of being in a busy street with lots happening uh, on the street and with good shops you need density it's an important ingredient and yes it may some people might view it as polluting the skyline but i think that uh, you know probably what's the most interesting city in north america i think it's new york city it's or it could be toronto could be chicago but those are very dense cities and they work because there's a mixing of uses there's density there's uh, different age buildings and they're very exciting urban environments and that's where i think that's where young people want to live so um it's sort of the uh, good comes with uh some you you lose something with uh with with density maybe you lose some views but i think if it's done right it can lead to really very exciting urban environments
2: so I want to be able to say I'm a young person. I want to be able to have a vote on that because the so here's the here's the alternative is La Défense. That is really a suburb of Paris. So if Paris just allowed La Défense, La Défense to just go ahead and make Paris an all high highest of density cities, we would not have uh, the Paris that we all know and love. And those monuments and the way that the streets all connect. I mean, of course, that was La Défense that was like, you know, was copying Paris in many respects when he laid out the city of DC. So I would say the architectural asset and the, you know, the, the, the aesthetic contribution and value of DC is it's the way that the town is laid out as laid out in, in its street design. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I have, to, I'm, I'm very conflicted by AB fifty fifty and that, um, oh, we should d- just decide that the, the students need to have more housing right where, so Hausman had it correct when he and Napoleon, what they did, they went and they raised all the streets of Paris, they put back in the big boulevards, and then everything there is is necessarily, say, about eight feet of height restriction, and it turns out that, you know, the maids and the different people that are working there nearby in that neighborhood, they're living on the top floor, and everything is integrated vertically, but not at a very, you know, high, well, 50, you know, I can fly into Buenos Aires, and I have to fly over miles and miles of 50-story Basically, they look like prisons. As you fly in and you see the laundry hanging off of everybody's uh, balcony in their in their housing districts. That's been been that are high rise. I mean, I'm talking high rise, like you'd see, you know, Manhattan. So I don't know. I think that I think there's a lot of pure architectural design that has to go in and be be part of the conversation, rather than just oh, we need higher density because design matters. Architectural design matters. architects are, are the, the spokesman for humanity. Can I find the front door to the building? And, and do I enjoy when I'm walking out on the street? So anyway, that's, I'm sort of, sort of punching buttons here, but that's, that's my pushback to what you're, what we're all having conversation here about.
3: Point taken.
1: (laughs) Doug, we're coming to the the close of our, uh, your show. Is there anything that uh, we may not have touched on that you'd like to, to share with uh, your audience?
3: No, I think we've covered some some good areas. I Hopefully people have found this interesting, and um, I, I've, I've enjoyed it as well.
1: Thank you. Doug, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you. Thank you very much.
3: Good, and yeah. all the best to you and your audience. Thank Ex- you very much.
1: Excellent. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Doug Abbey, Lecturer in Finance at Stanford University, where he works with GSB students to evaluate career opportunities in real estate and to expose them to research and educational opportunities in the field. Doug's also chairman of Swift Real Estate Partners, a San Francisco-based company focused on value-add office properties on the West Coast. He previously co-founded two investment management organizations, AMB Property Corporation, merged with Prologis, now the largest global industrial REIT or REIT, and IHP Capital Partners, a provider of equity to the single family home building industry. For more information, feel free to visit gsb.stanford.edu. Again, that's gsb.stanford.edu Put Douglas Abbey. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader
2: committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at KZSU Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location throughout California. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Hyagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom DiOro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. And again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. And without hesitation, I have to give Doug Abbey full credit that I agree with him that coffee drives land use.
0: (laughs) Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. I'm gonna make you I'm gonna make you